Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Hey, Brad. Hey. What you doing? Well, uh, you know what? I got a little germination test going on right here. Mm, on the top of your refrigerator? Well, have you ever spent, well, you probably don't go around your kitchen looking for warm spots, but it's a little warm spot right on top of the refrigerator against the wall. Uh, yeah. So it's perfect for germination. Yeah. I, I never thought of that as a germination spot, but I can definitely see that. Um, but what kind of acorns are those? Well, I'm glad you asked, Gregor. These are Southern Live Oaks, Ooh. Quercus, Virginiana. I see. That must be literally something you picked up on your recent trip to New Orleans. Uh, and actually, thank you for mentioning the trip to New Orleans. That was a fantastic trip. <laughs> if we have any, actually, side note, if we have any listeners in New Orleans, we, you have to have us back down to do a show from New Orleans because that would be like the best show in the world. But <laughs> Okay. But yeah. So no, I brought those back and I'm just uh, trying to get them started, see if we can get them to grow here. Oh, interesting. Well, I see that, Brad, you haven't learned your lesson about moving plant material around. I seem to recall a conversation where you were enamored with a certain vine, which was later known as the vine that ate the South. All right. Well, okay. First off, there's a little hyperbole in there, right, Greg? So first <laughs> off, that was wild cucumber in my backyard, right? So that was not kudzu. Let's just cut that one out right there. Um, and I told you that, right? Like I told you it was kudzu. So you're really gullible, aren't you? I don't know what hyperbole it means anyway. I, I don't know. Well, you know, next time you come down, I've got a I've got a timeshare here in Spring Green that I want to talk to you about. I, I think it'd be a perfect match for you. I, I think it'd be really good. Is that the back of your garage? Yeah. Well, it, we'll make we'll make it work, Greg. Just <laughs> we'll put you into this timeshare. But truth be told, so the, so those southern the southern uh, uh, oaks that I have, those are really just for the house, but. I did plant a pecan in the yard, so oh. I'm not saying it's happy, but at least it's alive. Well, truth be told, there are pecan hickories not far from you. No, well, how well how far is far? I mean, it's hundred miles. Well, over isn't there some over by uh, Dubuque? Yeah, well, all right, Dubuque, maybe a little bit south of Dubuque, but but none none around me. Well, none here, Brad. Um, I'm glad you brought up this subject of planting new things and moving seed sources around. I'm not sure how well that live oak's going to perform in Wisconsin or the pecan that's in your yard, uh, but you will not be the first to be thinking such things. Today on Silvacast, we will dive into the interesting and sometimes, as you know, controversial topic of forest-assisted migration with Dr. Carrie Pike, the Area Regeneration Specialist with the U.S. Forest Service Northeastern Area. That's fantastic because I know the Kerry has a ton of experience on both the forest genetic side, which I know you're kind of involved with too, but she's also on the applied aspects of nurseries, reforestation, things like that. And maybe I better make sure that she knows that 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 uh, live oak is a house plant. <laughs> we'll just maybe not talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll forget it. And now a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. And now back to the show. All right. Carrie Pike, welcome to Silvacast. Good to see you. Thank you. It's nice to be here on your show. So Carrie, you and I have been working together for a number of years. Um, so truth be told, uh, we were both tree improvement specialists, you at the Minnesota Tree Improvement Cooperative and me over in Wisconsin. So if we digress into like really wonky uh, genetics conversations that nobody <laughs> else is interested in. Brad, it's your job to pull us back 
um, to re- reality. So gladly, gladly, because I know once in a while I hear you going into the genetic stuff, and I'm like, "Well, you're you're getting into yeah. the soup." So it's easy yeah, to do. I'll do it when I can. So it's fun, uh, but I'll try to avoid doing that. So now uh, you're no longer in Minnesota. You've moved on to new new jobs and positions. So could you just tell us where you work and what you do? Yeah. So I work for the USDA Forest Service. I am with the Eastern Region State and Private and Tribal Forestry, as we are now known. So I'm not hooked to a national forest and I'm not in research. I'm that other branch. And um, I cover the Eastern Region, the 20 states from Minnesota, Maine, Maryland to Missouri. And I am based in West Lafayette, Indiana now. And I am co I'm at Purdue University uh, with the Hardwood Tree Improvement and Regeneration Center. My program, though, I am the program, I'm the Eastern Regions Program Representative for a, a program we call the Ringer Program. Ringer stands for, it's an acronym, Reforestation Nursery and Genetic Resources, R-N-G-R. We have a website at ringerrngr.net where we have lots of resources related to nurseries and genetics. We have a nursery directory on there. Um, And so my job is to just provide technical assistance to nurseries and states and anybody that needs help with Ringer topics both in the Eastern region and nationally, it's a national program. And you only cover from like Missouri to Maine, right? Is that what you Minnesota, said? Minnesota, Maine, Maryland to Missouri. I have the whole, the, I have the 20 state Eastern region. So I primarily work with the state nurseries. Wow. And we have somewhere around 12 of them. And I also work with, uh, you know, any states that have any genetic genetic program and they need help and guidance. And I also work with the Northern Research Station scientists to help them because lots of people don't understand tree improvement anymore. Yeah, (laughs) It used to be part of the forestry curriculum. It is not really now. And so I I help fill in that knowledge gap and and it hits in many different ways. It's always shocking to me uh, how many ways I can kind of get plugged into a program or a question or a project and I can provide help and guidance because a lot of folks just don't have this knowledge base anymore. Greg, that you and I worked so hard to get. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate having you in the region for that reason, because for a while, tree improvement was kind of pushed aside. It was no longer the popular thing anymore. But now with climate change, with insect and disease issues. Now, lots of people are talking about things like breeding programs. And so it's really great to have that background um, uh, in the in the region, in the area. So, And it's really good. I mean, it's having you guys, and I'm, I'm speaking in general, like gen- genetics and everything as a whole is really good because now we're starting to think about how this is involved in climate change and kind of how what we're talking about today and kind of the, the role of a forest in assisted migration. And so maybe Carrie, you could give us just a little bit of a background on what is uh, assisted migration when we think of it in a forestry context. This is a deliberate, intentional, human-assisted movement of forest, tree seed, or seedlings, typically in a more here in the Northern Hemisphere, in a more northerly direction, or from lower to higher elevations. And it's something that... um, We've done with tree improvement programs for a long time because we've figured out, looking across all the species that we've done tree improvement with, we tend to find that the southern populations along the southern range edge tend to be the best sources when you move them north. Those are the ones that you, you combine selection with identifying these provenances and you can grow trees faster, taller, sooner. So it's something we've been doing a lot. We just didn't know it. We didn't call it something. So, but in this case, it's 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 intentional. It's to provide more genetic resource, bring genetic resources into our forests so that the genetic material will be there as the climate changes and we don't know exactly what traits are going to be needed in our trees. We don't know what's going to be the optimal phenotype, right? The what characteristics trees are going to need to have. And so by putting extra, by bringing new material in, it helps hmm. to hedge our bets. So like that's a pretty big term, right? Assisted migration. It's got a lot of tentacles that come out of that. Are, are, what are, the, are there major versions of that or things that we should be thinking about? Like a, 
different classifications of assisted migration? Yeah. So the framework that has been given that I think is the most commonly thought of, there's three points to it. The first one is assisted population migration. And that's what I sort of just described with tree improvement. You look within the species range and you move a population maybe from the southern part of the range or, you know, Wisconsin, maybe move to southern Wisconsin, maybe to central or northern Wisconsin. You're keeping it within the range. You're not moving the species beyond what it would where it would normally be located. And so that's population assisted population migration. There's also a second one is assisted range migration. So if you think of the range of where a species occurs and what you're going to do is you're going to nudge it a little bit north of where it normally occurs. You're not moving it outside of where it could possibly move itself. So, but you're kind of nudging that northern range or up the elevation line a little bit. And the idea is that it could get itself there eventually. So it's not a, you're not doing something that's super dramatic. It may already occur there because range lines are fuzzy. Mm. Um, And then the last one is species migration, which I think of more, that is the most extreme. And that's where you're moving a species into a place where it would take, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to get there by itself. It's more of a species rescue. It's putting a species or a, pop, a species in a forest where it doesn't currently occur at all. That's the most high risk. Um, and that I think of as more an emergency, like something like butternut, for example, it's disappearing. You might want to do that with butternut, maybe they'll move it west out of its range to get it away from the canker, for example. Mm. So that's more of a species rescue. So foresters would be thinking more about the first two, either expanding the range a little bit further north or just taking more southerly populations and intentionally moving them northward. What would be a good example of the difference between like the, or what would be a good example of like, say the range expansion, just to to put that in context? So a range expansion would be like I, I in the Lake State. So like Northern Red Oak, um, which doesn't occur that much like in central, north central Minnesota, be like, but that's kind of, you know, that's kind of along its northern range edge. It would be pushing that into northern Minnesota where it's kind of rare. You don't see it that much, but it could get there. Um, and I forget the range edges in Wisconsin, but, it, you know, moving a lot of it is moving these hardwoods a little bit further into the, the boreal forest where they may occur, but they're rare. And then you're just going to increase their numbers. We've had that conversation a lot, Brad, with the uh, lowland forest species, because Wisconsin sort of rides the edge of a bunch of them like uh, sycamore, Kentucky coffee tree, those um and even Swamp White Oak doesn't go all the way into northern Wisconsin. So folks, because of EAB losses uh, in the ash lowlands, have been talking about bumping those ranges up a little bit more northerly. Yeah, it's interesting because and then some species, I imagine it's like you have to kind of debate that. So I know we've had tulip poplar plantings here in the state. And mm-hmm. so would that be a range expansion or would that be a species migration? Because it's kind of, it's a little further south, but I don't think it would have gotten here naturally, like on its own in a in a short term. Yeah, well, maybe in central Wisconsin, it would be a sort of a range expansion, but northern Wisconsin would be a stretch. Yeah. So I think it depends on the part of Wisconsin that, uh, that or the lake states that you're talking yeah. about. Um, yeah. It is Indiana state tree, and so we have a lot of it. Yeah. So here it would be more like moving populations from south to north. But for you all, it would be more rate, pushing the range edge. A little bit further north. Carrie, like you said, in tree improvement, we've done this for many, many years or decades, um, but we just didn't think of it as assisted mm-hmm. migration. As you said, we we're kind of bumping things a little bit north to right. increase performance in terms of growth um, aspects. But mm-hmm. now the focus has been on on climate change and kind of maybe the need to think about this more broadly across many species. Are species right now, do we know if their ranges are changing naturally because of a changing climate or do we not see that yet? And like how rapidly do we think those changes are going to occur where these species are going to need to migrate? So there is evidence. Um, the two, uh, experiments or two programs that I've seen that have talked to discuss this. One is in Canada, where they're finding spruce in areas, you know, trees that are growing in areas that did not have trees on them before. 
And so that northern range expansion is happening. And in some places, it's happening fast. Like they're surprised at finding spruce and other northern northern conifers in places where there just weren't trees before. There's also evidence in the east here and a little further south. Um, they're noticing just looking at FIA, forest inventory analysis data, where they have plots all over the place, they're noticing an expansion of some of the eastern forests are moving a little bit westward, which is interesting. And why would that be? Mm -hmm. And I suspect it's because there's been uh, increases in moisture in the last few decades. Uh, think of all the hurricanes in the Gulf Coast area, and that kind of trickles into the central Midwestern where I am. So there's been an extra moisture that may be allowing some of these species to kind of move their ranges a little bit further inland, further west. Because you in, Minnesota, in Wisconsin, you've got hemlock, but there's hardly any hemlock in Minnesota, mainly because it's dry. You, you have beach. Mm -hmm. They don't have beach in Minnesota, at least not in northern Minnesota. So those western range edges may also be creeping in if the moisture, you know, if we continue to have moisture in places. So you're seeing there's evidence of northern expansions and of some westward expansions. Hmm. And they're fast. Yeah. And that was kind of another question of mine. Is it always an, uh, a south to north movement or is it can it go in other directions, too, in terms of assisted migration? And maybe we're seeing that. Yeah, it's it, the moisture is important because this, as it gets hotter, if it gets drier, you're going to have more drought. And that's going to affect a lot of species. Their ability, you know, once they hit these drought lines, they're not going to be able to survive. Drought is a pretty good natural selector. But if the moisture keeps up, it should allow more movement as long as there's a lot more moisture to compensate for the heat. So you will see, um, but of course, moisture is so variable. You may have a wet decade, then you might have a massive drought. So that's what makes all of this really hard and unpredictable. And that's why the reality is that we don't know exactly what these communities are going to look like and what physical attributes our trees are going to need to have to survive and thrive. And so by doing assisted migration deliberately, we're hoping that we're providing the material to increase that probability that we'll have forests. I mean, the, the problem is we could lose forests. Trees can't make it if it gets too dry or too hot. Um, it could revert to something other than forests, a different, entirely different uh, ecological state that nature would might be fine with, but we may not yeah. be. And I'll channel a lot of our listeners who might be when they hear assisted migration, they might pucker up a little bit and go, wait a second, we've done this before and we've had all sorts of problems with moving species around and having bad things happen. So there's kind of a risk, but there, it sounds like there's also a risk not to do something too. Yeah, I think if, you know, this is why we developed seed collection zones for the Eastern US. If you're going to do this and you want to be smart about it, you want to make sure your seed, if you have source identified seed, so you know it comes from like Southern Wisconsin, for example, and then you know if you move it northward, you at least have some ability to predict. If you don't know where your seed comes from and you're just, well, I'm just going to take the seed source and move it, the left, you increase the probability there's going to be a failure. And so having tracking where the seed comes from originally, it just increases the likelihood that you'll have a successful outcome because you'll be moving it intentionally. So for example, I have a tulip poplar in front of my house. It's an urban tree. Who knows what the seed source is? Every year it leaves out too early. Every year. It just, and it gets frost zapped. Um, if you don't track where things come from and then you start moving them around, you increase the probability there's going to be some type of a failure. So foundational to all of this is knowing where your material comes from and then making sure you're moving it, you know, following some reasonable transfer guidelines, which would be generally, you know, not much more than 300 miles uh, northward. Yeah. And, it, and, and it sounds like maybe there's a difference in the risk between population migration, range expansion, and species migration? Yeah, so in that order, the, the first one, which is the one we've done for tree improvement, just moving populations around, that's fairly low risk. Trees are very tall. They're very, very, very good at dispersing pollen and seed around. They're masters at that, at migration. And so it's very low risk to do that because trees are already moving pollen and seed around. When you start to push those ranges into new spaces, that's a little bit higher risk, although if it's within, you know, 
throwing distance of of it of where the range edge is, it's not as a high risk. But it's certainly the further you move it into newer spaces, the higher the risk of potential failure. Gary, do we have any idea of how fast those trees would have moved naturally? Yeah, somebody's done the math on that. So historically, and I don't have that, I was going to look that up. So yeah, folks have studied how trees have migrated in the past following, you know, glaciation. So as glaciers came down and they went back up, you know, you can look at what that rate of migration was. And I don't remember what that number is. There is a somebody determined a rate. I think it does vary a bit by taxa, but there's like a rough approximate number. The problem is they've taken that number and lined it up with this with the rate of climate change, and they're not in sync at all. Yeah. Climate change, the pace of climate change is far greater than the geologic historical ability of trees to move themselves around to respond to um, you know, climate shifts that happened in geologic time. And glaciation was happening at its peak and when it went back down. So that's that's what's kind of driving this is the concern that our trees and one we've also think of all the barriers we put up on the landscape. Right. Um, you know, how hard it is to get past Chicago on a car. Can you imagine a seed? <laughs> so just think of all the barriers we put in place. So you've got a rate of change that exceeds what we understand to be natural. And then you've got all of our barriers in place. And so yeah, it makes it, and those are the primary factors that are driving us to even consider right. this and make plans for doing it. I'm just picturing that squirrel with an acorn trying to get across Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a D- Disney movie. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. Looking for heavy duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. Today's episode of Silvacast is also brought to you by... The Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now back to our show. I think this this conversation about assisted migration, I think it's really important because yeah. a lot of foresters now are are considering climate change. And we know that that this is one of the tools we have, although we have a whole toolbox of other things that we can do to to adapt and to mitigate and things like that. But but worst case scenario, you you come to the idea, it's like, okay, maybe I have to think about assisted migration. So as a forester, what are some of the things that, like advice to them, what would you say, okay, here's where a good place to start if you're thinking about assisted migration? Well, for one, I would, I mean, it's a very local problem. A forester has to look at their forest and say, all right, what's going on? If you've got a clear cut, because you had spruce budworm that took out a white spruce stand, you've got a clean slate. So what do you do? Um, You know, there's a lot of, first of all, I would recommend there's a lot of resources and I'll provide you some links. I would read up first. I would also look at resources like the Climate Change Atlas because that gives you maps and you can see where you are and the species maybe that you were planning to plant and you can see how it's forecasted to do. And you can look at other species that are forecast to do well there. So I would look at, I would, I would just get into the literature. There's, we have some really good scientists writing really good papers that are not, uh, that are well written. They're not painful to read. We've got some great scientists working on this stuff. There are also a forest service that's a number of resources. Read up, then go walk around your woods. And I would start looking for cues that things aren't quite going the way you'd expect them to. Are, are you noticing species in your forest that you didn't notice before? That, wow, that hardwood's doing really well there. Are you noticing invasive plants coming in that you didn't see before? I live in a haven here of invasive plants. They are moving northward. Start paying attention to what's in your forest, what's new in your forest, and then begin to think you can use some of these tools to figure out, you know, maybe I should try this species, in small amounts, you know, you want you don't want to go whole hog into something new and you don't know the risk. 
But I also want foresters to think about a concept called the target plant concept. So assisted migration, the seed source you're using is just a part of a decision if you're going to plant your trees. And again, this is a, a tree planting story. There's a whole silviculture story too with how do you thin? How many stems do you keep? How big should the gaps be? There's that whole kind of a flip side to the species that you want to be planting. But you need to pay attention to what's in your woods, look at the tools, and then if you have the ability, if your bosses say it's okay to do, you know, bring in some more southerly seed sources or some southerly species, you know, I would try it because we don't know. It's a very local problem. Foresters know better than anybody what their woods look like and what they think will work. And they pay attention to stuff like that. And I would think, you know, combine the tools with your local knowledge and the resources that you have and the permission that you're granted by your, your agency or your company. And I think it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to start tinkering a little bit if, you've, if you're allowed to put some new, maybe southerly species that you're finding in your forest, but they're rare. Maybe see how they do if you plant them or try, you know, a more southerly seed source if you can get one. The challenge is getting the material that you want. I think that's where, as you said, the target plant concept yeah. really comes into play. And we've talked a little bit, Brad, about this uh, on a previous SilvaCast and the whole idea of matching uh, the plant or the growing stock um, and its performance to the site. Mm -hmm. yep. And it really comes down to uh, that relationship and feedback between the nursery and the field practitioner that they're developing this. And so I think that's a really important concept to think about, especially as we get into maybe situations where we're looking more at restoration and they're difficult planting situations to begin with. Yeah, I really, I really hope that foresters think about that. Um, and kind of practice that concept. Yeah, and the nursery stock type is important too. Right. If you're going to start getting into planting more hardwoods, for example, in the lake states, and that is, and you know, you you mentioned um, white oak, swamp white oak. Those are different trees to plant from conifers. Much much bigger root systems. They're more often grown as a bare root seedling. You can't put them on shallow soils. You can try, but some of that Canadian shield is pretty unforgiving to a bare root large hardwood. So yeah, it's thinking about all those things and you know the seed source you choose and the species you choose are, are embedded in that target plant concept. Terry, are there any other, uh, you mentioned the tree atlas and we've talked a bit about that too on the show. Are there any other tools that foresters can use to help them think about so what stock to select or how far to move seed sources? So. Yeah, there, there are. Well, there's the Williams and Dunrose paper from 2014. There are a number of good papers written. There are for sites, there is the, hold on. Well, besides the Climate Change Atlas, there's something called the Seedlot Selection Tool. And we have added the Eastern Seed Zones to that tool. And that kind of gives you an idea. It doesn't have any genetic information or any species information. It just tells you where's my climate analog. And it gives you, you know, it can give you an idea of where you could look for seed depending on a climate scenario that you embed. So I would look at that. Um, if you're interested in knowing your seed zones, we in 2018 developed seed zones for the Eastern US called it's you can go to the website easternseedzones.com. There's a link to an ArcGIS map. We had a meeting and, and basically we we snapped the plant hardiness zones to county lines because what we just, you know, at this meeting, what we know is that a lot of folks who collect seed don't like to tell you where it came from but they'll tell you what county it came from. And so we snap these to county lines to make it uh, more usable. So it's the hardiness zones snap to county lines, the eco provinces using the Bailey system and they're overlaid. And so common seed zones have the same hardiness zone and the same eco province. And that helps you figure out what's local. And if you want to do assisted migration, like you really want to do it and you want to go like one seed zone to your South, 
chances are good you're going to be within a good a reasonable transfer distance because that's how they were designed we in addition though we've been i've been reviewing the literature with colleagues on what we know about seat transfer from all those old provenance trials that have been in the ground since the 50s and we've been writing these species profiles and they are in tree planters notes mm-hmm. tree planters notes it's at the ringer site if you just google tree planters notes it's a it's a twice a year periodical that we produce uh and we have a bunch of species profiles on there and it talks about the what we know about the genetics for like about 10 species and you can use that as guidelines but i i co-wrote or wrote all of them and the, the number 300 miles, unless you're on a tight range edge, like Jack Pine in Western Minnesota, that 300 mile rule for moving as, as a safe rule kind of works for almost every species that I did a profile for. So if you go 300 or under, you're fine. 300 or over, it might be fine. The further you get away from 300 miles, the higher the probability of a mismatch. Hmm. But 300 miles is a safe distance for all the trees that we looked at. So I think that concept of seed zones, seed collection zones that you've developed for the eastern United States is really important. So I just want to explore that a little bit more. So those seed collection zones, if I hear you right, those are basically telling you uh, that defining maybe what local is. So seed collected and planted within that zone should have similar uh, adaptabilities, Um is that correct? That's right. So within the zone, you can move seed source with almost no risk for a mismatch because you moved it too far. Now, you could have other problems. You could have bad nursery stock. You could have the wrong site. You could have other issues. But the risk of a mismatch because it was moved too far is basically nothing. Um, but if you want to do assisted migration and you don't want to think hard about it, go to the seed zone to your south you'll be very likely within the 300 mile distance because of the way they're sized. And, um, and that's kind of like assisted migration for dummies. I mean, it makes it really simple. It's not gonna, it's not gonna tell you uh, what uh, seed sources are adapted to your area, but it gives you kind of some stepping stones to work off of. Um, And, and as you said, maybe, begin assisted migration in uh, maybe a more lower risk fashion if you're just going one seed zone to the south. So translating that for a forester who's decided they want to do assisted migration, they want to do that that planting, they need to get the the nursery to identify where these are, where the seed source is from, correct? Correct. And therein is the the challenge, is getting seed from seed sources that aren't necessarily local. It may be in a different state. And that is sort of the bottleneck right now because seed collectors um, are few and far between. And you might have to go to a different state and they may not sell to you. (laughs) But And so you would want to, I'm guessing too, you'd want to know that that nursery got their seed locally as because i i know some nurseries will gather seed from quite a long distance away and so because you're ordering it like the nursery might be like 100 miles away but that seed might be even further away so for foresters who you know buy large quantities of seedlings i would say have a conversation with the nursery a year or two before you need your seedlings and talk about the seed source with them and say hey look i want to try this do you have a network or do you know anybody can get seed from this location? And you could say the seed zone and the seed zone will be a bunch of counties. And, and, and I think it's important for them to have those conversations with the nurseries. And then, cause it's easier for the nurseries if they know they've got customers who are going to buy a certain seed source. If they know someone's buying it, they'll grow it. And do, do nurseries separate out seed by seed sources or be like their seedlings by range or where it's from within a, a range? So it depends on the nursery. Um, some, we have state nurseries and private nurseries that do that. Many of them don't. Um, and so, but I think if they know they've got somebody who's going to buy material for them, they'll grow it for you. And if you're buying, if you're buying a lot of seedlings, they'll grow it for you <laughs> and they'll sell it to you. So what makes it difficult is for small private landowners who want to buy like a hundred seedlings and they want it from a specific place, you know, those orders are hard, can be very hard to fill. But if you're buying like 10,000 seedlings, they will take a nursery bed and, and grow it just for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's the scale matters. And I think that's where the new Eastern seed zones can help um, because nurseries are starting to adopt those and they can kind of talk a common language, right? Of, you know, this, this, uh, these seedlings are from this zone or whatever. So uh, I think the more that that gets used, that will be helpful to address that issue. I, I could see the danger for the nursery though, is that they might grow a lot from one zone, but not from another. Before they just had a whole bunch of red oak. Now they have red oak that's varieties or, you know, not variety, but but they have t- flavors of red oak so that it's, you have to be a little more careful. So I can see them being, it's 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 a, a catch 22 too. It's more complicated for sure. And, yeah. and seed crops being what they are, sometimes you have a good seed crop from, you know, zone 26 and 27, but not from your further north zones or something like that. So, so there's variability there. Um, So like Carrie said, I think these are kind of where some of the bottlenecks are occurring um, as we get more into this. So, so say, so Carrie, say I'm a, a, say I'm a forester. I've, I've decided that this is the appropriate tool for climate change. I'm going to use assisted migration, one of the versions that we talked about. So I plant the seedlings in, I know sometimes people worry then. So there's that risk of like the ecological impact of this. Maybe it's the, whatever we planted or maybe, you know, something else. So are there things foresters should be watching for? Are there safeguards we should take when we're, when we're actually implementing or kind of maybe even monitoring some of our, our plantings? You have to watch for, of course, the Lake States, you got to worry about deer. They may think that hardwood tastes delicious. Um, you have to watch for other critters. You have to watch for insects and diseases. And I would keep an eye on uh, how synchronized are they? How are they handling the conditions there? Are they leafing out at the right time? Are they, you know, are they behaving like I would want it to behave? You know, if you walk in there and in the fall and everything's dropped its leaves or and you and your tree's still green, you might go, uh oh. <laughs> So yeah, you need to pay attention if you're, then I think foresters are good at this. And I know foresters like going in the woods and just pay attention to these very subtle cues sometimes that something is working or something isn't working. Can foresters maybe avoid some of those risks by doing that sort of stepwise assisted migration that you talked about, not going too far south for your seed sources? Um because they have to be adapted to the climate right now, right? Not um, in order to survive. Exactly. Correct. That's why I wouldn't whole hog go, you know, uh, replace a, a seed source you've been using. that's worked pretty well completely with a new one. I would mix it because, yes, it still gets cold in the lake states and you want to minimize those risks. The other thing that I try to tell people is that the other thing is sometimes a sign that it's the wrong seed source. You may not see it. They may survive fine. They may grow fine. But if you're trying to meet a timber target, if you want like a white oak barrel in 40 years, you better have the right seed source. Or because the, the differences between an adapted source and one that's not really well adapted might be increments of annual growth that aren't quite what you expect them to be. And you may not see that for 10 years. And then by then you're scratching your head because you're like, I'm not going to have the size tree I want and the time I want. So that's why paying attention to the seed source. I mean, sometimes the consequences can be fast. They get killed immediately. But sometimes the consequences aren't observed for another five, 10 years. And by then you're not going to cut it down and replace it, but you're also going to not going to meet any other targets you might have for reaching a certain size log in a certain amount of time. And if the desire is to have those trees become adapted to their new environment and actually produce seed and be reproductive, can that also be an issue if they're moved too far north? Yeah, flowering, especially in in hardwoods, which flower, conifers technically don't flower, but they do produce inflorescence. So yeah, that can be a consequence. So here's a question, Greg, why aren't the red pine producing seed in the lake states? When was the last time you had a mast year in red pine? Is that a a climate change thing? Is that a, a red pine problem? Those are those are big questions that we need to study. We don't have answers for, but yeah, not being able to reach reproductive states where you can collect seed is is a red flag. And there's probably something. I mean, there is something to that. So 
it's it's I, and it's easy, you know, because now I, I think it's very hard to tease out that impact of climate change in that situation. But but it is interesting too because I think about it a lot. Like we plant all these things, but we really have no assurance that they're actually going to be able to reproduce wherever we plant them. So they could be a one and done if we don't do it quite right. Carrie, I'm curious, and this is just you know sometimes you have to go down the rabbit hole to kind of find the answers, but. But we talk about assisted migration, and we've assisted migrating species across oceans, right? So, so we know that they grow a lot of our North, North American species in Europe, and they're happy with that. Are there situations, or do you envision a, a, a time or, or a need for, for actually embracing maybe some of these non-native species as a part of assisted migration? I think... I, I don't think so. I think in North America, we have such a diversity of native trees that I don't think we need to, and I don't think the public really wants us to start embracing that. There may be places in agroforestry where um, where, where you start to cross the line between forestry and agriculture, where there may be a desire to do that. But I think for the forestry community, especially most of your listeners who are working in native forests, we have such a diversity of, of native trees in North America that I, I don't think it's necessary, but um, we do need to pay attention to what insects and diseases are doing. I think of butter, I mentioned butternut canker, look what emerald ash borer is doing, look what hemlock woolly adelgid is doing. These are scary because these, these things, as we saw with chestnut, can wipe out entire continental ranges. And that's the only instance where you know, if there was a, a tree, so for example, Manchurian ash, now I'm not saying we need to replace black ash. And I think with black ash, there may be hope as far as resistance breeding, but those are the scenarios where I would, you know, where we may as a community start looking for similar attacks that have filled those niches if ours get wiped out. And that we've seen that in real time. We see that happening and that's not out of the realm of possibility. I'm glad you brought up the Manchurian ash because I, mm -hmm. when I saw that a long time ago that we were considering that, it felt like like climate change forces us to open cans of worms that we closed a while ago. And it's like, well, let's reconsider that. You know, like maybe we do need to think about some of those. But I would also remember that since we've lost so much tree improvement knowledge, that the ability to do resistance breeding is also something, it's also part of, it's also kind of part of this climate change thing because we may be able to develop uh, adapted populations that have improved resistance. And that although for some species like emerald ash borer, it seems like a far-fetched, like really that works, it does, it can work. And we are seeing progress uh, with some of these species. Look at American elm, it, it should be gone. It's not gone. It's in the woods. I th we think natural selection is, is working on it. And we're also trying to improve it. The Northern Research Station as a program. And I think we are going to see. So before that, we give up on our taxa. I would ask folks to consider that resistance breeding can be an option, even when we've got these awful pests, that it can work. And it, we're seeing progress with it. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes me nervous about those long range movements, Brad, is just maybe some of the other diseases and pests that come with that plant material. And we have some terrible examples, um, unfortunately, of those things. So, Carrie, I'm really glad that uh, you've made progress on those seed transfer guidelines. I was wondering kind of where those those were at. So there is information uh put together for a number of species you said so we have done these for black spruce i'm going to i'm going to forget one black spruce white spruce white pine red pine black walnut red oak yellow birch there's another one <laughs> anyway there's a bunch of them about 10 of them my my criteria for choosing them was we have to have subjected them to some type of a provenance trial sugar maple is another one we also have to have done some baseline population genetics on them, which describes the genetic diversity of the species. And so as long as those two criteria were met, then I wrote a species profile for them and I co-wrote them with a bunch of colleagues. And they're all except the shortleaf. I did one for shortleaf pine, which is in the Mark Twain National Forest in Southern Missouri. Uh, I wrote all, all of them are in tree planners notes, except for the shortleaf pine, which will be, my goal is to put them all into one agricultural handbook 
And that's on my to-do list. That's great. And that's I wanted to highlight that because I've just thought about that over the years. We've done these provenance tests, progeny tests, programs for a variety of species, not all of them. They were all kind of more the the highlight species from a timber production standpoint. But how can we look at all of that data that was collected over decades, maybe from a climate change lens or an adaptability lens, as opposed to just a timber production lens? Um, so I'm really glad that that information is kind of getting uh, synthesized so people can use it. We needed that badly. I also included sections on insects and diseases so that you end how palatable they are to browse. Um, just whatever we could think of that seemed relevant to a forester, forest, a land manager. And, and they're tight. They're succinct. They're not long-winded. Each one has, each species has a table, the same information summarized. And that's where I started to see that 300 mile number over and over and over again. Yeah, I know we did some provenance tests here in Wisconsin on black walnut. And uh, our number was about 200, I think 250 miles mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, we we uh, wanted to restrict the movement of seed uh, south to north. So yeah, again, right in that ballpark. Yeah, and you're along the northern range edge too. Right. So you wouldn't want to move it too terribly far. Right, because we'll have winter in injury issues so yep and, ju and just to do a little cleanup for uh for our audience and that's maybe not in the uh tree planting and genetic realm so provenance <laughs> test what are you what do you mean by a provenance test and i actually i i'm just asking because it's i think there might be a, a discussion on that yeah that's a great question so with provenance trials the provenance refer means like location as in what provenance did the seed come from and the forest service said a lot led a lot of these efforts in the past so a provenance trial is a collection of seed in a common garden, and the seed comes from a large geographic area. Oftentimes they're range-wide, sometimes they're just regional. And the idea is that you grow the seedlings, you get all the seed from across the range, you grow them at one nursery, and then you spread, you put them at multiple common garden sites. And so it gives you a lot of data to study, you know, how how well does the Alaskan seed source go and grow in northern Minnesota, for example, and, and you can look really, they were planted to determine transfer distances, that is why they were planted. But now for climate change, they're really useful, because it's like, wow, this one was growing in a much colder climate, how is it doing here, in this location, and so they're powerful. And uh, they're being revisited, although a lot of them are old and we haven't planted new ones. And that's our research need for us. And, and Common Garden, is that just a, a similar planting site or what is Common Garden? Yeah, Common Garden means it's just a plot uh, where they're all subjected. All the, the So the seedlings in that plot will experience the same daylight, the same rain, same precipitation, same climate conditions. And then the idea though is that you replicate that plot in other places. But that common garden refers to the fact that all the sources in there experience a common environment. So they get subjected to the same and you can, so the differences among them becomes due to their genetics and where they, you know, whatever genetics uh, shapes them from their origin. So Carrie, you brought up research is there any uh, maybe good examples of some new research that is going on uh, that maybe supplements some of this old uh, forest genetics research? Um, and I guess in addition to that, are there needs um, of things that we need to start looking at more in depth? So some of our colleagues, um, some folks in the Lake States are installing a series of uh, their, their climate common gardens, again, to look at the effects of assisted migration, that's happening now. Um, they're growing, I think some of their seedlings are being grown in Wisconsin at the nursery. There's a lot more research happening in the West with the common gardens. There's because most of the forest land in the Western US is federally owned. So we have a lot more federal scientists working on it. Uh, and there are they've done a lot of what they call gene ecology studies. And it's a gene ecology study. We have some for red spruce in New England as well. It's just a short-term common garden study. But it's the same idea. You get seeds from multiple sources. You put them together. You let them grow. Treat them all the same. And with gene ecology studies, so you're looking at shorter time frames. You're looking at phenology, bud break, bud set, short-term growth. And what they're finding in the Western U.S., we've had some really great scientists working on this. 
they're finding that they can select seed sources and learn a lot from these short-term studies that you don't have to wait 50 years to get an answer. You can get them quickly. So those are the kind of studies that we need more of. But in addition, and this, this is a little bit off of the genetics realm, but the, the Adapted Silviculture for Climate Change series, um, that acronym is ASCC, ASK, that's looking at the silvicultural, you know, the silviculture story. And assisted migration is a piece of that. But there's that whole flip side for a forester that they have to think about. Right. And they're installing new studies. There's a new one going in in Kentucky that I was I was part of the, the meeting to define the treatments. And so, yeah, so more common garden studies. Some are happening. We'd probably need more. They don't need to be 50 years worth, but they do need to be coordinated. And it's a lot of work. Yeah, Brad and I are involved in the Dripless Ask project. But Good. that's exactly right. There's, there's a lot to... Uh, climate adaptation beyond just this assisted migration piece that foresters can consider and look at. So that's always really important to remember. Yes, especially for this community. You know, in the end, maybe I'm, I'm, I might be reading this wrong, but it feels like with a lot of our assisted migration, because we're taking a risk, we're moving some things, it kind of has like failure cooked into it. Like you have to be prepared for like you, you might want everything to work, but in this situation, it might be you have might have to accept that some of it's just not going to work. Frank knows, and any forester knows that anytime you're planting trees, there's risk, right. and it's just a natural part of. It's just the risk of planting trees in general. I think just doing an assisted migration it does enhance the risk maybe a little bit. But again, if you're thinking target plant concept and you're just using maybe a slightly more southerly source, I don't think you're really adding on to the normal day-to-day risk that foresters encounter when you're trying to do any kind of artificial regeneration. That in and of itself is risky and expensive, but we have to do it. I could picture though, we might be planting in some situations, like a good example, like we at least at least here in Wisconsin, we just don't do as much of these large open field plantings as we used to. Right. And so now we're going into maybe thinking about enrichment plantings or understory plantings. And so those are, I mean, we're new, we're new, not new, but we're, we're gaining experience with that and probably getting better. But I can imagine that that's one more risk or one more thing that'll be involved in some of this that just even with climate change or anything, we're going to be facing new risks that we haven't had before, maybe thinking about it in new contexts. The other thing too, that's really interesting from a carbon standpoint, if you're planting, as we're planting and looking at new opportunities to put more trees in, most of the opportunities are on marginal agricultural land. That in fact, foresters have done a great job of planting trees to the point where most of the reforestation opportunities for climate change and for like carbon are on marginal agricultural lands. So that's an interesting sort of wrinkle in this that foresters have done a lot, but yes, the the idea of an enrichment planting to enhance what's on the site already is is likely what most foresters are going to be thinking about. I think that this conversation just reiterates to me is that this subject has lots of tentacles, as you put it, Brad, and that it's complicated. Uh, So you have that nursery end of it and the seed collection, that whole aspect of it. You have the decisions about moving seed sources, but then you also have the planting site itself and the conditions and all of those aspects that a forester has to meet. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just, it just reiterates to me that, that we're learning and it's complicated. Well, I think, and, and I think about it and maybe this is maybe just me, but I think of it in terms of tree planting, I've thought of as, as reforestation, yeah. right? Like we're putting trees back into places. But with assisted migration, that's not necessarily the case. We may have trees there. We may be just introducing new species or new seed sources or new genetics into an area. And so it's not necessarily going into these really huge plantings. This may be actually much smaller scale plantings because we have a different purpose for it. Correct. Correct. Yeah, very much so. And I would ask foresters to pay attention to what's happening in the forest, which they do already, but look for cues, look for subtle cues that, you know, maybe some hardwoods would grow here. Maybe I need to enhance a particular species that I'm seeing, but not much of, maybe it will do better in the long run. Maybe I want to supplement what's here. So yeah, there are going to be interesting opportunities for foresters to kind of tweak what they're doing and just to make our forests a little bit more diverse for the future, but you got to work under some shade sometimes too, yeah. which is tricky. It kind of goes back to diversifying is always, you know, 
probably a pretty good strategy in, in a lot of circumstances. Carrie, I just think uh, I'm just kind of looking back at this conversation here, and I think there's some really important takeaways for foresters who are looking at getting into maybe considering assisted migration. And the things I walk away from is make yourself familiar with the eastern seed zones if you're in the eastern United States. Um, I think that's a really super useful tool, as well as potentially those seed transfer guidelines with certain species. And then the other thing I took away from this is we have to plant trees that are adapted to today's climate, as well as the climate in 100 years, given the tree's lifespan. So that's where this stepwise approach, or I don't know if it's a cautionary approach, but it's more just strategic, I think, um, you know, two, 300 miles um, of movement at a time, I think is a really, there's a lot of sound reasoning, I think, behind that. Greg, it feels to me too, like, even before that, it's like, just make sure this is the right tool. Like when we are thinking about climate change, there are lots of different things we can do. And this is one of them. And then make that decision that this is going to be that right tool. So things like the climate change atlas and other things will help you make that decision. We talked about a number of resources, Carrie, today. We can make sure we try to get those from you and get them posted on our show notes so that foresters can maybe dig into this a little bit more. Will that be okay? I have a list of them going. I already have a list and I can get them off to you soon. Okay. That's great. Well, I think I really appreciate this conversation. And I think that uh, foresters can walk away with maybe um, some concepts of how they can approach this um, in a more strategic and wise fashion. So thanks. Uh, thanks for, for providing that insight. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And if we want to get really into the weeds, now is the time to talk about deleterious alleles, Brad, and uh, let's go for it. I, I can tell I'm going to have to fight, fight back the geneticists at this point, you know, just spit out like common terms that would be like tree marking paint, you know, just to throw things at a different level. Yeah, it's all fun. So thank, thanks, Carrie. It was great talking with you. Thanks, Carrie. You're welcome. Thank you. And good luck to all the foresters out there listening. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is our regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. So Brad, this week we received a question in the Dropbox from a forestry student, love to get those, asking how they could get started with a career in silviculture, which is obviously the best career that you can choose. I, it's it's obvious. Well, I think people like you know, they try to be doctors, lawyers, and then there's silviculturist right above that, yeah. right, Greg? Yeah, not everybody can shoot that high. Yeah, I think uh, it also, it kind of depends on what you want to do in silviculture, because really every field forester is a silviculturist. Right. So uh, if you want to practice silviculture, uh, you know, a field forester position is is a great place to do it. Yeah, I I, I think it's really important to get really good experience in the field because that it helps you, it informs everything you look at and kind of puts it a, puts everything through that lens of does this make sense on the ground? Mm -hmm. You know, because there are a lot of things that I see where I go, I'm not, this sounds really cool, but I'm not sure it's either going to have application or maybe can we, can we even adapt this? Or there are other things where you go, my God, this is going to be fantastic, but it's all through that lens of that experience on the ground. Yeah. And then if you want, you can start you know, specializing and refining uh, the Forest Service, higher specific um, district silviculturists. Uh, there's the National Advanced Silviculture Program that they put the silviculturists through, which we had the great opportunity to go through ourselves. And there's silviculture specialists like us at state level and for different organizations. And then if you want to go, you know, further and go into research, then there's that whole avenue of of research, uh, both, uh, you know, at the Forest Service level, for example, and uh, at the university level as well. So there's it kind of depends. And But I think you nailed it from the beginning. Like, we are all foresters are basically applied silviculturists, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as, as long as you can, I think it's really important. If you're a forester, you are a silviculturist. Good advice. Greg, I think Carrie really helped us plant the seed on assisted migration with that conversation. I feel the range of possibilities <laughs> is just moving up at the seed of light. 
And we really need this kind of balanced discussion to make decisions before things go south or is that north? Anyway, this discussion has been an expansion of my thinking on assisted migration. Oh, help me. Brad, a friend in seed is a friend indeed. Ah, excellent. Excellent. Now you're getting it, Greg. <laughs> in any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with your questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Susan Barrett, Editor-in-Chief, Logan Badan, our new IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs> <laughs>